Genesis 39, we'll begin reading in verse 1. Genesis 39, verse 1, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. Now then, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought, brought, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up up his garment by her until his his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into prison the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we now come to your word, we recognize that it is your word and it is from you who we need to hear. So speak to our hearts, instruct us, encourage us, build us up, correct us, exhort us, Lord, rebuke us where we need to be rebuked and cause us to see the beauty and majesty of Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, of all the passages of Joseph's life in the book of Genesis, I would say this is probably the most well-known. 
If you grew up in the church, you have heard this passage taught on or preached on probably more than once. Uh, we've, we've, we're, we're familiar with it if you've spent any time in the church. And when it is taught on or preached on, it usually sounds something like this. Joseph resisted temptation, be like Joseph. Does that sound familiar? I'm assuming from the giggles, I didn't expect that, but I'm assuming from the laughter that that, it's not just me. That's usually how it comes across. And it's true. Joseph did resist temptation. And it's not a bad thing to consider being like Joseph. I'd say that that would be the right thing to do, resist temptation. But that's not the theme of the passage. You know, often when we talk about a theme of a passage, it's something that is a little harder to see maybe or you have to study a little bit to see it. I don't think we have to look very hard though in this passage and you probably noticed it as we read it. Themes are often clear by, one of the ways themes are often clear is by repetition. And what's the one phrase that we see repeated the most in this passage, these 23 verses? It's what we've named the sermon. The Lord was with Joseph. That's the theme of the passage. We see it repeated, as I said, four times. We see it in verses 2, verses 3, verses 21, and 23. So not only is it repeated, it is repeated in a way that has some structure to it. Do you see that? It's twice in the beginning, twice at the end. And this is called an inclusio. And we've seen inclusios in Genesis, but I don't always point these things out. I don't feel like that's what we need to do, get into the grammar and the the details, unless there's something that is particularly beneficial from it. And I think it's beneficial to notice this today, because this is not only an inclusio, this is a double inclusio. It's the same phrase repeated twice at the beginning and twice at the end. And this is the author's way of making it especially clear to us that this is what his emphasis is in penning these words. And so years later, when Moses would write the Pentateuch, Moses is the author, as the Lord guided him, this is what was important. Not that we can't consider that Joseph resisted temptation, but that that's not the theme. The theme is the God who was with Joseph in this time. In a sense, it's like underlining. You know, have you ever underlined a note or maybe you left a note for somebody? If you're a parent, you were leaving and you left a note for your child. There was one phrase that you underlined. Why was that? Because you want to make sure that they didn't do like some people might do, and that is just scan the note and miss what's important. And if there was something that was especially important, like when you said load the dishwasher and you said all the dishes, you might put two lines under the word all, because you know that they might leave a few out. What are you doing there? It's a double underline to bring extra attention to what you mean by all. And this is Moses' way, this double inclusio of bringing our attention to what he is emphasizing in the passage. Keep in mind that Moses wrote this following the return or the, the, the departure, the exodus of the Israelites from the land of Egypt. They're headed toward the promised land, and the Pentateuch is written in this time and for these people. But these stories would have been told orally uh, to the people of God. They would have heard these stories. But this has been included in Holy Scripture, not just for the people of Israel at that time, but for all the people of God from that time until now. So this is important. It's important for us to know this. 
that God was with Joseph. You look in verse 2 and you see the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. It's implied that it was because the Lord was with him that he became successful. But if we think about this, Joseph is a slave. What slave in human history thought of themselves as successful? Then if you look in verse 3, the Lord was with him and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. No longer implied, it's explicitly stated that the Lord is the one who gave Joseph success. And yet he is still a slave in a foreign land. When we jump down to the end of that inclusio in verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. Another paradox. Joseph's a slave in a foreign land. How is this steadfast love? Do you ever question things happening in your life? Said, Lord, why are you allowing this to happen? Maybe you've even questioned further and said, does God even love me? Or or he wouldn't allow this to happen. And yet here we see Joseph at what we might think is rock bottom. Of course, by the end of the story, he goes even further than rock bottom from slave to prisoner. But here is Joseph, and what the author's pointing out to us is the Lord was with him and showed him steadfast love. And finally, in verse 23, the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So Moses is very clear in his writing here what the theme, what the big idea, what the main point of this passage is. That is, the Lord was with Joseph. Now, you may be thinking, okay, we know that, Seth. You say this every week, or almost every week, or you pray it, or you mention it. Some, you know, we know this, we got this. Why is this such a big deal? Why is this so important? Well, I think it's important because although we all know it, we all forget it. We forget it all the time. Every time we worry or infil- and are filled with fear, we are forgetting who is with us. Every time we blow up in anger, every time we beat ourselves up in shame, or we think or talk or act with malice toward others, we are forgetting the one who is right there. Every time we lust in our hearts, gossip with our tongues, or envy what a friend has just acquired or accomplished, we are not dwelling on the abiding presence of our God who is with us. We could say that every time we sin, We are forgetting about God's promise to be with us. In that moment, you know, we used to say things and sort of hear things like this in Sunday school. Would you do that if Jesus was standing right there? (laughs) And, And of course, to children, we all think, you know, no, we wouldn't do that. The Lord is with us at all times. So I think when we do sin in those moments, we are forgetting that God is with us. And so this emphasis then that Joseph, that God was with Joseph is not only for the people of Israel who are, you know, they're in this state of limbo as they come out uh, after 400 years of slavery. They're in the wilderness. They're, they're approaching the promised land, but they're not, they're not there yet. But this is going to be with them even as they do enter the promised land, even as they go through the time of judges, as they go through the, the time of, of, of various kings to know even exile that the Lord is with them. It's a message not only for them, but it's a message that we need to hear. In fact, it's a repeated promise of God that we see throughout Scripture. One of the most 
repeated promises. I will be with you. I will not leave you. I will never forsake you. We've called it the Emmanuel principle. Emmanuel meaning God with us, that we are never alone. We need this because all of us are facing challenges in our lives. And we know that we're not promised a life free from storms, free from difficulties. But what we are promised is that Jesus is with us in the storm. We're not promised a life free of of oppression or a life filled with prosperity. What we are promised is that Jesus is with us in our want and our suffering. We're not promised a life free from threat of harm. We're not even promised that we won't die. We are going to die. And yet, what are we promised that in death? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Jesus, who is with us in life, will be there to greet us in death. Nothing can separate those who are in Christ from His love and from His presence. And so this repeated phrase that Yahweh, our covenant God, was with Joseph is exactly what each of us needs every day of our lives. We need this. To, this is an anchor to hold on to, that God is with us. So let's keep this in mind now as we look at the text, the narrative itself. I mentioned it's, this inclusio is in the beginning of verses 2 and 3 and the end of 21 and 23. I left out verse 1. Verse 1 is kind of like, you know, when you read a play, uh, before the narration, before the, the, the dialogue begins, you have that little statement at the top that kind of gives you some context. That's what verse 1 is doing to us. It's, it's bringing us back to where we were in the story. It's Moses' version of meanwhile back at the ranch. You remember in the old westerns, they would have that phrase, meanwhile back at the ranch. That's what we're doing here. We're meanwhile back at the ranch, coming back to what was going on in the life of Joseph. We had looked at the account of Judah and Tamar last week. Now we're reminded Joseph's in Egypt. He was sold as a slave. And he is now the possession of this man named Potiphar, who is a captain of the guard in Pharaoh's army. And then from that context, we have the first of that double inclusio that establishes God's presence with Joseph. We see that Joseph, though he was a slave, sold for 20 shekels by his brothers, that the Lord was with him. And we also see that because of the Lord's presence, Joseph was successful. And yet, as we've already considered this, this is a paradox. Again, what slave considers themselves... I mean, how, how does a slave look at their life and say, yeah, I'm, I'm succeeding, I'm living my best life now, you know, this is good. No. Now, this was not Joseph's context. Joseph didn't know the future. Joseph didn't know how things were, were going to pan out. He didn't know how God was going to deliver him. But he knew and trusted who his God was. In 1 Corinthians 1, 28 and 29, we read, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Joseph is a living, breathing example here in Genesis 39 that in his weakness, God's strength is made perfect. That's not something that we like to think about. It's, it's a promise that we repeat, maybe a verse we've memorized that we hold on to, that in weakness, in our weakness, God's strength is made perfect. But let's admit it, that's not the way we'd prefer. We'd much rather prefer our strength to be carrying us, wouldn't we? I mean, that's the way we would like things. None of us want to be weak. None of us want to be dependent. None of us want to need God. We want to be self-sufficient. And yet, in Joseph's story here, 
a story that we can identify with in many, in many ways. He was completely dependent on God because he was a slave. In verse 3, we see Potiphar observes not only that Joseph was successful. Joseph's a hard worker. He's got a good work ethic. He's someone who can be trusted. But it says specifically that he was aware that the Lord, Yahweh, caused all that he did to succeed. So here is an unbeliever, Potiphar, a pagan, who is able to see that Yahweh is the source of Joseph's success. What does this mean? Well, it means that the way Joseph was living his life was was such that Potiphar could see. In other words, Joseph was living his life to give Yahweh glory. He was living out his faith, what he believed. Because if there was anyone who could have been bitter, angry, sullen, pitiful, fill in the blank, it's Joseph. He went from being Jacob's favorite, living a prosperous... I mean, he had a good life to being sold by his brothers for 20 shekels, now a slave in the foreign land. This is exactly how you and I are called to live. We're called to live not to be like the world, not to to be recluses from the world and go hide. We're called to be salt and light in the world so that others might see our good works and glorify our Father who's in heaven. This is how Joseph was living and serving as a slave. In Egypt, And because of the gracious work of God in Joseph's life, his position in the house was elevated. Potiphar promoted him. Until he's over all that Potiphar owns, it says Potiphar wasn't worried about anything. And this is clear fruit of the promise that God had given to Abraham, that I will bless those who bless you in Genesis 12.3. We see this. God was blessing Potiphar because of Joseph. Look in verse 5. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house, for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field, so he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Notice that God was doing this at least in part for Joseph's sake. Stop and consider that for a moment. Here's another paradox. God is blessing Joseph's oppressor. God is blessing the one who possesses, who paid money to own Joseph. God is blessing a slaveholder, it says, for Joseph's sake. And so the next time that you see the wicked prosper and scratch your head and wonder where is God's judgment, the next time you see someone mistreat you or misuse you and you wonder where is God, the Lord is with you just as he was with Joseph. See, God is working in this upside-down, paradoxical way, a way that seems backwards, a way that we don't understand. It doesn't make sense. It's counterintuitive. And it certainly doesn't look like love. And he's doing all of these things just as he did for Joseph in our lives as well, for our good, just as he did for Joseph's good. He is working all things together. Potiphar didn't have to worry about anything, it says, except for the food that he ate. And this gets a little bit into the strict dietary laws the Egyptians would have had, but I want to point this out in that how they viewed Hebrews. You know, it's, we're so familiar with this story, many of us are, that we don't see the weight of it. I find that as I come to this story, I almost think, like, yeah, yeah he's, he's promoted, he's doing pretty good. I mean, he's, 
living in a you know officer's house and he's in charge of everything. He's you know kind of got the best life he could have. No, I don't think that was it at all. I don't think Joseph was thinking, yeah, this is this is what I dreamed about. This is what I've wanted. When I was sitting in in, in bed as a boy, wondering what I would be when I grow up, this is it. I've reached it. I don't think so at all. He was sitting as someone not only who was a slave, but who was looked at as an abomination. That was how Egyptians saw the Hebrews. That's why they wouldn't eat in the same room. That's why they wouldn't let them touch their food. And we see in Potiphar's wife, uh, in her accusations against Joseph, she calls him a Hebrew several times. That's a derogative term. She's name-calling Joseph. She's blaming. She's, it's, it's, it's this form of racism of saying, he let this Hebrew, and we all know what Hebrews are. That's, that was what Potiphar's wife was getting at. This is how Joseph is viewed. He's not viewed as some you know, great employee. He's a slave who is looked at as unclean and an abomination in this world, this foreign world in which he is now living. And then the author adds this one piece at verse 6, the last piece, that he's handsome in form and appearance. Of course, this is setting up the stage for what was about to happen. Potiphar's wife is never named in this text. This happens often when the author does not wish to honor the person. We've seen this a number of times where the person is named only by a description of who they are. They're not, they're not given their name. And, and we, we, we pick up on this with Potiphar's wife. She's only referred to as Potiphar's wife. And we see why in terms of her character as it comes out. She cast her eyes on Joseph. And this is a term that is intended to imply lust. And we notice that she just demands. She makes demands. There's no sense of enticement or anything. She treats Joseph like a slave. She commands him, lie with me. That's her command to Joseph. And we have to remember again, you know, we often think of this in temptation, and certainly that component would have been there, but there was, there was a different kind of temptation that I think we might not be mindful of, and that is the temptation to conform to something when it's commanded of us by someone who's an authority over us, even when it's morally wrong. Joseph resisted that temptation as well, because as a slave, he should have just done what he was told. That is how he should have functioned. And furthermore, when we think of his state, as we've already pointed out, Joseph is, from a human perspective, he would have every right, so to speak, to be bitter, to be filled with self-pity, to say, why should I stand up? Why should I do the wrong? Why does it matter? I mean, he is at the lowest of lows, or so we think, at this point in his life. But you see, we don't have to do a character study of Joseph to understand why he took a stand. Because Joseph is not the hero of the story. His God is the hero of the story. We only have to look to his God who was with him to understand why Joseph was able to take a stand, why he did take a stand. And notice this isn't just one time. It says Potiphar's wife kept coming day after day. She was, in a sense, assaulting him with this command, this temptation. And to this temptation, to this command, Joseph responds with this incredible boldness and clarity, beginning in verse 8. He speaks first of his position of responsibility. Kind of uses just a little bit of wisdom. This isn't the right thing to do, he says. Furthermore, second reason, you're married. (laughs) Uh, And your husband is my boss, and he specifically said, and this is interesting, you can't touch my wife. Now, why would a man like Potiphar need to say something like that? 
Possibly because he knew something about his wife. He knew something of her character. And I'm not making this up or trying to beat up Potiphar's wife. I think it comes out in a number of ways in this text. We'll see another one in a minute. But I think he knew something of what kind of person his wife was. And so he he gave Joseph this specific restriction. But the final and most important reason in verse 9 was, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Again, we can imagine how Joseph could have easily been bitter. And one of the reasons that we're warned against bitterness is not just because it eats us up. It does. I I want to warn you against bitterness. As someone who has fought through bitterness, I can tell you it will eat you alive. But it also opens the door for sinful responses in life. When you're bitter, when you're dwelling, it's, it's like battery acid, right? You're just raw. And when you, when you keep eating on that which is making you bitter, you keep feeding on the wounds and the hurts from which you are bitter, not only does it continue to make you raw, but it makes you so susceptible to respond in a sinful pattern. And so it's remarkable here that Joseph is not in this place. And it's a clear indication of God's grace in his life that God was with Joseph. He wasn't wallowing in self-pity. He wasn't wallowing in bitterness. We see this amazing grace of God's presence with Joseph. Joseph's response is one of wisdom. This is clearly the fruit of God's presence in him. When you read through the book of Proverbs, there's so many warnings there to the young man against getting caught up in the way of the adulteress, getting caught, drawn in with her eyes. And this is the connection with the way that Potiphar's wife looked at him. But as wise as we can say Joseph was in this, this is not because Joseph is perfect or because he's some kind of super saint, because he has it all figured out or he does everything right. We know already about Joseph. A few weeks ago, we, we, we know Joseph's a sinner just like us. But Joseph's wisdom, his grace, his courage, his self-discipline is all the fruit of Yahweh living in him, his presence with him. Because Joseph trusts God when he's been sold into slavery, because Joseph trusts God when his owner is blessed and prospers, the slave owner is blessed. Because Joseph trusts God when his wife tries to lead him into sin and later falsely accuses him, Joseph is empowered by the God in whom he trusts to then make a stand. So this narrative then is not teaching us, put on the whole armor of Joseph so that you can make a stand. Or be filled with the fruit of Joseph so that you can live a life pleasing to God. No, the emphasis of this text And I would say every text in Scripture is to put on the whole armor of God. That the fruit of God's Spirit in you would be fleshed out in your life. So the hero is not Joseph, but Yahweh the Lord who was with Joseph. And so even after he makes the stand, the story doesn't end. Wouldn't it be nice if it just ended there? He ran off, he fleed temptation. No, it gets worse. Potiphar's wife now makes a different kind of accusation. A false accusation. No one likes to be falsely accused. Uh, None of us do. It's something that uh, can be um, not only a source of great dread when you're falsely accused, but it can also lead you into anger and other things. But it's interesting that um, even though this lands him in prison, it doesn't cost him his life. 
You see, under the laws of his time, we can look in secular writings and understand this was a capital offense. What Joseph had been accused of could have cost him, maybe even should have cost him his life. But the fact that Potiphar only throws him in prison is, again, another indicator that he may not trust his wife's innocence in this, in this whole episode. That he may have known something about his wife. But either way, Joseph has gone from rock bottom to now whatever is below rock bottom. <laughs> he has gone from a slave in a foreign land now to being a prisoner in that same land. We don't imagine things getting any worse, but here they do. And it's in this deeper crisis at that pit of a pit, so to speak, that we see that next double inclusio, that God was with Joseph. And in verse 21, it states not only that the Lord was with him, but that he showed him steadfast love. This is that said, that steadfast love, the grace of God, the unending love of God. And let me ask you, is that how you would describe God's love? Consider where Joseph is. Consider what he has been through. Does that look like love? Does that feel like love? When you say, you know, God, show your love toward me, is, this, is that what you have in mind? Is that what you, it isn't what I would imagine. I think I would be angry. I think I would be depressed. I think I would be questioning God. How could you do this? How could you allow this? You know, it's the why do bad things happen to good people, so to speak, question that so many people have. And at the end of the day, how can all this work together for good? Yet the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is His faithfulness. You see, because so many of us know this story, because it's so familiar to us, I don't know that the real weight of it uh, hits us the way that it should. I think, for me at least, I'm so comfortable with this story that I almost think Joseph doesn't really have it that bad. Uh, I have to differ with myself on that. This is horrible. He is in a horrible situation, and it's gone from bad to worse. He's in prison. He's now been falsely accused. He's now falsely imprisoned. I think this is a, a tortuous, tortuous place to be, to try and process. Lord, what are you doing? Does any of that ring a bell? You ever been in a place like that? You ever been in a place where you're scratching your head saying, Lord, how is this loving? You, you say that you love me. How is this, what is happening right now, how is this love? Again, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And so again, the hero of the story is not Joseph. The hero of the story is the Lord who was with Joseph. You see, the Lord went with Joseph to Egypt. The Lord went with Joseph into slavery. The Lord went with Joseph into that temptation. The Lord went with Joseph into that false accusation. And the Lord is with Joseph now in that false imprisonment. And just like the Lord was with Joseph and all of those things and more, the Lord is with you. He's with you in your suffering. He's with you in your questioning. He's with you when you think that your world is falling apart. He's with you when you think the world is falling apart. 
And because of this steadfast love, he has said that he shows us that never ends. He has given us himself, his presence with us. And that presence is pictured for us, not only in his death, but in this table. Because this table is not just pointing us backwards. This is not just a memorial. This table is his presence with us now. And that He is reminding us that He is with us. He's in, that's why it's called communion. He's inviting us to commune, not just with one another. We do this together for a reason, but we're communing with Him. We're communing together with Him. And so we're invited to come to this table. A reminder of who He is and what He's done. That He shows His steadfast love. You see, just as Joseph was unjustly falsely accused, suffered, imprisoned. So Jesus came willingly to be unjustly accused, to suffer for wrongs that He did not do, the wrongs actually that you and I did. He did no wrong, and yet He took on everything that you and I did. He would suffer. He would die. What is pictured in the bread and the cup that are before us today that you and I might live. The sufferings of Joseph don't seem like the steadfast love of God. And sometimes our sufferings don't either. But consider the cross. Not the idea of the cross. I'm talking about the cross on which Jesus died. The cross upon which He suffered. The sinless Son of God suffered and shed His blood, and died, it doesn't look like love either. It's only on this side of the cross that it looks like love, because we realize what He accomplished for us. But the act itself, the suffering itself, if you had been standing on that hill at that time in history, it wouldn't have looked like love. You see, Jesus endured the ultimate suffering, the wrath of God, that you and I might be forgiven that our sins might be paid for, canceled, the debt removed. And it's in and through that paradox that we are forgiven, freed from the penalty of sin as we trust in the One who willingly laid down His life for us. The Lord was with Joseph, and the Lord is with you. As you face hardships, as you wonder about the what-ifs in life, what tomorrow could bring, as you try and process the past, with its wounds and damage. Jesus is with you. And because He is with us, we know that His steadfast love will never fail, but will carry us to the end when He finishes the good work that He began in us, when He makes right all that is wrong, when He rescues us, delivers us from this world that has been broken and wrecked by the fall, and He brings us home to to commune with Him no longer through a veil, then face to face. He is with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are with us. And we confess that we so easily forget it. When the troubles of life come crashing back in, when the realities and the pressures come back into our lives, in those moments we forget that You're with us. Would You cause us to remember the story of Joseph Not that Joseph was a good man, but that Joseph had a good God who was with him. Who was with him 
in the lowest of pits who was with him in the pit that was even lower than that. That you are a God who is with us, who will never leave. You never walk away. You never get tired of us, fed up with us. You're never going to discard us, throw us away. You have promised that you will not lose one. You will not lose one of your children. Nothing can pluck them out of your hand. And so may we take that list that we read then in, in Romans 8 of all the things that can't separate us, that exhaustive list. That Can we, Lord, help us to take those things that are happening in our life and plug them in there to remind ourselves that nothing, nothing can pluck us from your hand. That you're with us, you'll never leave. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.